0: The reading is from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, just two verses. You'll find it in the uh, Pew Bibles on page 1139, a living sacrifice. Therefore... I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please keep your Bibles open to Romans 12. Over the course of the next 20 minutes, we're going to unpack this singular statement of apostolic exhortation with the express purpose of showcasing the power of divine mercy, God's mercy, to change the meaning, the motivation, and the mission of your life and of our life as a church. Now, if the theme of this new series at St. John's is growing in community, and if the default title of this sermon is belonging means commitment, then the subtitle should be commitment requires divine precedence. In other words, God's mercy makes possible your sacrifice and his mercy affects your transformation. These two realities form the structure of our brief examination of Romans 12, 1-2. And we'll see that in verse 1, divine mercy enables our sacrifice. In verse 2, we're going to see that Transformation requires resurrection. Before we proceed further, however, let us pray. Father, it's only by your grace, by your mercy, that we have been able to enter into a relationship of trust and reciprocity with you. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious transference, this reversal of our status. And we ask you, Lord, that... In this new status that we exhibit as your children, that you would teach us this morning that as we open your word, you would reveal yourself more to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the pre-context of Romans 12 includes everything... In chapters 1 through 8 of Romans. And that includes Paul's critique of Jewish legalistic boasting. His presentation of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. His leveling out of circumcision and the equating of Jewish and Gentile believers on the same plane of sin and salvation his paradigm shattering analogy of adam and christ his replacement of the law of works with the law of faith as the criteria for redemption and his radical claim that all the saved that's both jew and gentile are co-heirs with christ and children of the father in chapters 9 through 11 Paul asserts that God's claim on Israel remains in effect due to his irrevocable calling and, significantly, his mercy. And this mercy is the singular counterpoint to the rank disobedience of every single human being who has ever lived. A disobedience under which they have been subjected by the very hand of God himself but in order that he might shower mercy on all. And then, immediately prior to the therefore of 12.1, Paul's heart explodes in praise in the doxology of Romans 11.33-36, through 36, and where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of, of God, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Augustine saw in that last statement a Trinitarian claim, and I think he was right, and we'll look at how that works out as we proceed. But this is why Paul's sense of urgency in 121 to his Roman audience is palpable. The vocative verb, I exhort you, I urge you, indicates a command backed by apostolic authority. The three things that Paul tells the Roman believers and us to do, they're not casual snippets of advice on how to live a better life or Paul's opinion on how to be better, nicer, happier people in the raunchy pagan capital of the Roman Empire. No, the three imperatives that Paul chooses to use are actual commands, and those are based upon his authority as an apostle called by Christ. They are requisite behaviors for those called and redeemed by God as our reciprocations, the giving back to God for his gracious gift of salvation. However... The things that Paul demands from his readers, and also from us, are only possible through the power of God's mercy, that same mercy that was exhibited or showcased by Paul in the glorious exposition of chapters 1 through 11. Romans 12, 1 and 2 don't make any sense as in Bible memory verse spoken alone. They need Romans 1 through 11, because that is where we know God is merciful. He is, capital M, mercy. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, or through the mercy of God. But what does Paul urge us to do? Two things. Number one, Offer your entire life as a sacrifice to God. But know this is only possible through his prior act of mercy. Number two, be transformed in your thinking. But even as you have been born again to new life in Christ through the Spirit by the mercy of God the Father. The things that Paul exhorts us to do, are only possible through what God has done. So let's look at these two points in a little bit more detail. In 12.1, Paul writes that we must offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Paul earlier exhorted us in chapter 6 to offer your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Righteousness. Paul's appeal to a Christ-informed ethic of living is bodily. It's not simply an inner, spiritualized experience detached from the physical world. The believer's response to God's mercy is comprehensive. It includes every sphere of your human existence. So when Paul speaks of the body here, he is referring to the entirety of your person. As Calvin comments... By bodies, he means not only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. You are thus no longer your own, but holy God's property. In other places, Paul uses the language of complete and total ownership. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of Christ. Our bodies, our complete and total existence belongs to God. Remember that these verses... 12, 1, and 2, they follow on directly from the doxology that we just read, where it says, for from him and through him and for him are what? All things. God's mercy on all in Christ means he is Lord of all. But not only is this sacrifice to be comprehensive of all that we are, it is described by Paul in three very distinct adjectives. It is to be living, holy, and acceptable. Consider these three in turn. First, our sacrifice is living because of the newness of resurrection life made possible in the death and resurrection of Christ. In Romans, life is the definitive Christian experience of divine mercy. one seventeen. the righteous will live by faith. 6.4, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 6.11, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 6.13, same language, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. If you know the Getty's song, let the peoples praise him. He has called us out of darkest night. Where? Into your glorious light. That what? That we may proclaim the glories of the risen Christ. 813b. The flesh is what? It's death. But the spirit is is life our sacrifice however is also living because it is continually offered day by day by day it is not like the sacrifices of old in the temple that were slaughtered dead burned and gone your sacrifice as a child of god is a daily waking up in the morning living every moment for god in thought in deed And then going to sleep at night, you are like a stick of incense in the temple that is lit, burns this precious smoke to God throughout the day. And then at night is extinguished as you lay your head on your pillow to sleep again. And then the next morning you repeat until the day when you awake in his presence. Second, our sacrifice is holy because it is exclusive to God alone. Paul called the Romans saints in his opening address to them, in the very beginning of the letter, acknowledging their status as separate from the world and sanctified to the living God. As Christians, we are called to sanctified relationships made possible by Christ's sacrifice and the faith that the Holy Spirit enables as the dwelling place of God's very own spirit, as those who possess the very life of Christ within us, read Galatians 2.20, the holiness of ourselves as sacrifice is utterly contingent upon the fact that God himself is the holy God. Third, our sacrifice is acceptable to God Only because God has made it so in Christ through the Spirit. What is truly pleasing to God is clear throughout the Scriptures. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. That's Psalm 51. According to Hebrews, when Christ came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will, O God. The sacrifice of Christ himself was pleasing to God because he came to do and he did God's will. The Father's will. Obedience to the will of God, thus, is the only standard of acceptance for your self-sacrifice, for our self-sacrifice as a body. It's not simply thinking rightly about God, knowing scripture, being a theologian, But it's the doing rightly that follows from that thinking. Indeed, this is how Paul concludes verse 1. This is your true and proper, or another way to interpret that, is logical or reasonable worship. Logical or thoughtful or true worship is the outflow of a mercied and resurrected life in which your entire being, your every action, your every thought, every breath is consecrated, set apart to God as his and his alone. In other words, worship which is not accompanied by obedience in the ordinary affairs of life must be regarded as false worship unacceptable to God. The ancient church father, Chrysostom, known as the golden-tongued preacher, he offers the practical application of what this looks like. I like that at the mention of Chrysostom, the wind picks up. Uh, Go and read Chrysostom this afternoon. He says this, how is the body to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing. And it has already become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say nothing filthy, and it has become an offering. Let your hand do nothing evil, and it has become a whole burnt offering. But even this is not enough, for we must have good works also. The hand must do alms, the mouth must bless those who curse it, and the ears must find time to listen to the reading of Scripture. Sacrifice allows Of no unclean thing. That's Chrysostom. But how is all this possible? How can you and I fulfill that level of commitment? That level of sacrifice to the mighty, holy, righteous God? Well, only through the mercy of God. His mercy in the death and resurrection of Christ. In the giving of his spirit. That is... The predicate of your living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. And that is the power that makes it possible. Well, Paul continues in verse 2 with two more imperatives for us to follow. The first imperative, of course, is present your bodies as a sacrifice. The second two are do not be conformed to this world. And then third, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The negative command, do not be, is intended to warn us Christians from thinking that there is any correspondence between the typical ways of behavior and thinking in the cultures, countries, and worldviews in which we live and breathe because the new age has come in Christ. The kingdom is here, in a sense. But the old still persists. Christ has yet to come again. Now, the ancient church father, Gregory of Nyssa, comments thus. us, the fashion of this world is groveling and worthless and temporal as well. It is nothing noble or uplifting about it, but it is wholly perverted. Now that language might sound harsh to our soft western ears, especially given the present trajectory of much of the church. a church that seems to be seeking continually to make itself more attractive to an ever-secularizing culture by conforming to it. But Paul doesn't say that true worship involves dressing up the gospel. Rather, true worship requires something much more radical. It requires a transformation, a metamorphosis, an ontological reversal of one's being, a resetting, or if you will, a resurrection from the dead. Paul told us earlier in Romans 5, 9 through 10, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life. Do we really understand that this gospel-enacted transformation is not just a better way of living, a more hopeful experience for the present life, a living your best life now, or a filling up of the hole in your heart? No. Your transformation from ungodly to child of God who cries, Abba, Father, is deliverance from the wrath of God himself. The Spirit's renewal of your very being saves you from God himself. That is transformation. You, dear Christian, you have escaped the unappeasable wrath of the living God through the only perfect sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. And in this work of God, you who have been chosen, set apart, and made righteous, now you live a life of hope in that resurrection from the dead, even as you have already been made new, born again through Jesus Christ our Lord. That transformation of your very being is the foundation of the transformation of your mind. Remember back in Romans 1, 28, how does Paul begin? He begins with a judgment, a condemnation of all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. And what does he say this wickedness comes from? He says, just as they did not think, that's the mind, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to what? What? A depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So even though you have been made new, born again, God's demand on you is growth by the Spirit out of that previous context of a depraved mind. Our faith is a thinking faith, a reasonable faith, a a reading faith. And yet, all of that, those actions are informed by the spirit that God has given to us. We are to bear good fruit, live on our faith in this world, immerse ourselves in the scriptures, intercede for the saints, do good works. Every action that you take from the moment of your conversion, from dead in sin to alive in Christ is compelled by a mind that has been, is now and will forever continue to be transformed through the power of God's living word. Listen to what Origen says about this. He says, I doubt whether a mind which is lazy toward the Holy Scriptures and the exercises of spiritual knowledge can be renewed at all. Many people think they know what God's will is, and they are mistaken. Those who do not have a renewed mind err and go wrong. It is not every mind, but only one, only one, which is renewed and conformed to the image of God, which can tell whether what we think, say, and do in particular instances is the will of God or not. In other words, The only way to discern the good, acceptable, and pleasing will of God is with a new mind. And where does that new mind come from? From the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in you through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no way to discern the will of God as an unbeliever. And that is why this radical transformation, this death to life, is essential and necessary. The renewed mind is one saturated with the word of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, redeemed by the love of God, submitted to the lordship of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul means by discernment. This is the great reversal of God's act of judgment against sinful humanity who is depraved in their minds. You, Christian, have a new mind that is being Renewed. To conclude, we experience God's mercy as a power that exerts a total and all encompassing claim upon us. Grace now reigns. Where sin once dominated and held us captive, mercy now is Lord. Furthermore, We now live out the values of the new age, the kingdom of God that has been inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ. We live these values out in the conditions of the old, the sin-laden world that will continue until Christ returns in victory. So, if the triune God has delivered on his promise to send his Son, if the triune God has delivered him to death on a cross and raised him again to make us righteous, if the triune God has rescued us from our depravity, if he has transformed us from his enemies to beloved children, if that triune God has poured out his spirit into our hearts and given us a true and lasting hope in which we rejoice, we boast as redeemed Jews and Gentiles together, if that triune God has shown us mercy when we deserved death, then what remains to us but to offer ourselves? Corporately, yes, as a church body, but also individually as redeemed sinners completely to God. But how can we do this? Through the power of God's very own mercy, his mercy that affects our great and awesome metamorphosis, our paradox of transformation through the Spirit, in the Son, by the will of the Father. Praise be to our great God. Let us pray. Father, it is only by your mercy that we have any hope whatsoever, not only of eternal life and of hope for this present world that is sin-laden and sin-soaked. But we have hope, Lord, that our experience as people of God is continually growing and becoming renewed in our minds and the way that we think about you and the way that we think about others. Please help us, Lord, to rest in this comfort that comes from the knowledge that you are the one who is working in us And we can rely upon the work of your spirit, even as we put forth our own effort to work out this great and glorious salvation that you've given to us. Amen.